I'm going to direct your attention, dear brethren, back to Matthew chapter 10. And I just would remind you briefly what the particular objective is of the studies that we're presently engaged in in Matthew chapter 10. It isn't to deal with the entire chapter. In many respects, we're simply working through what we might call an extended excursus on Matthew chapter 10 and verse 23, which we have been looking at now for two Sundays, this being the third. There are certainly many other aspects of Matthew chapter 10 that are very interesting. As the Lord allows, we will revisit this chapter and have a full treatment of Matthew chapter 10. But I'm not going to attempt that at this time, and so we're hoping to bring to a conclusion this excursus, and I think it will have some value on its own. It becomes somewhat of a launching point from which to get back into Matthew chapter 10, and at any point, anyone who's teaching on this chapter would necessarily have to deal with this question as to how should we interpret Jesus remarks in the 23rd verse where he says to the 12 that he is looking at, when they persecute you in this city, flee into another, for truly I say to you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. One of the things that we haven't done is ask the question and engage in the mental exercise of wondering, what do you suppose one of the twelve himself was thinking when Jesus made that remark? Indeed, I'm not going to digress into sort of investigating that reflectively. However, I think just by posing the question, if you entertain it in your own time, you will have a fresh insight into why this is a bit of a tricky text. Now, Albert Schweitzer, as we have seen, represents someone who argues that the words that Jesus says here are plain words. Those are the choice of words that Schweitzer uses. He says in a quotation that I am somewhat editing, that is just elliptically, I'm not changing his words, I'm just leaving some of them out. He says, Jesus tells the twelve in plain words in Matthew 10, 23, that he does not expect to see them back in the present age. The parousia of the Son of Man will take place before they have completed a hasty journey through the cities of Israel, that the words mean this and nothing else, should be sufficiently evident. We have made an effort, and in some respects will continue to make an effort to manifest that that could not possibly be the case. That as a matter of fact, that is a very silly interpretation, let alone unsophisticated. Now we're doing that because by driving that wedge of understanding into this text, then I think that we can, as it were, pry off the lid that is sort of nailed over the box of what is inside this text and what this text means, 
And if we can get a wedge into Schweitzer's interpretation, which is a very shallow box of understanding, I believe that once we get that wedge in there and show you that it cannot just be, as he says, plain words, there's more involved. Then once we open that lid, it then becomes a question of how deep is that box? How wide is that box? How far ought we to go in right exegesis in understanding the breath the warp, the woof of what Jesus has to say here. And I believe that this is a useful approach so that from that exercise we can investigate other eschatological views like preterism or historicism and other arrangements of eschatological reflection. Now, as it happens, we're not in an eschatological doctrinal exercise here. We're not in this study seeking to give teaching on eschatology as such. We're wanting to give us the right understanding of Matthew 10.23, but that involves eschatological reflection. And indeed, I do believe that it's useful for us to sort of interact with some of this eschatological reflection in the context of our gathering and our time spent in this place to be trained, because as it is with our orientation to the world, we've got our five senses of sight and smell and taste and hearing and touch. I would argue that one of the spiritual senses that we must have in order to have a good orientation spiritually a good standing and understanding of God's world, of the biblical world, one of the senses that must be able to function is an eschatological sense. You need a good theological sense. You need a good anthropological sense. You need a good harmatological sense. And I'm not going to limit it to five categories, but I definitely believe that one must have a good eschatological sense. You must be able to sense the true eschatology and have a feel for that, if you will, in order to put the rest of the biblical record together appropriately. And yet we know that eschatology is the discipline of biblical study that is the most unsettled, the most contested, has the most variables within it, even among brothers and sisters in Christ that are otherwise serious students of God's Word. I'm not here to address that issue. It's an interesting reflection. If we were teaching on eschatology in general, we would speak about those sorts of things. I think I'm just going to satisfy myself for the moment by stating that having this little excursus into Matthew 10.23, which engages us with some eschatological conversation, I think is good for your soul. It's good to stir you up and to get those sense nerves reinvigorated. I believe that if we can demonstrate that Jesus' words in Matthew 10.23, and of course in its context, if we can demonstrate that Jesus' words can not possibly be reduced to this category of plainness, that it means that and nothing else, if we can demonstrate that that interpretation renders the text totally incomprehensible, totally silly, then, as I said a moment ago, we can then realize that we have to enter into a deeper meaning and that's, in part, what we want to continue to provoke our hearts toward. Indeed, 
The statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 10, 23 and its context says too little and too much for Albert Schweitzer's interpretation to be correct. So on both sides of the spectrum, Schweitzer's approach doesn't work is what my argument is going to be. Too little is said by Christ for that to work and too much is said by Christ for that to work. We will get to that in just a moment, but I would remind you that just as Jesus' parabolic discourses and his metaphorical analogies go beyond bland literalism, so too do Jesus' eschatological speeches involve a degree of complexity which is typical of the prophetic genre, a genre which is often hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned rest to their own, if not destruction, at least embarrassment, in terms of at least not rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, you see, when Jesus says parabolically, behold, a sower went forth to sow, it's to be understood beyond just the plain statement that all you think about is a sower going forth to sow. When Jesus says metaphorically, I am a door, or I am the door to the sheep, then clearly there's a depth to what he is saying. And so it is with the prophetic genre that it is legitimate, brothers and sisters, to recognize there are depths of interpretation. And that would be the essence of my argument as a premillennialist and a futurist, and I won't even grapple with my views on the escape of those who are counted worthy as overcomers in these last days from the things that are going to come upon this earth in terms of God's wrath and judgment. I won't even get into that at the moment. But what I'm saying to my preterist friends and to my amillennial friends and any who I would be conversing with, and I want to state ahead of time that I also hold myself accountable to listen to your ideas and your presentation and your reflections, but it is absolutely not illegitimate to plumb the depths of prophetic statements and look for deep and profound meanings. And I want to demonstrate that a little bit further this afternoon. First of all, let's consider that what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 is far too little for this to be a straightforward, as it were, plain sort of statement. You 12 go out into the cities of Israel, bring the message of the gospel, the kingdom, and before you're through, I believe that the parousia is going to come. Jesus believes that God is going to move on their behalf once persecution starts to occur, and the power of the kingdom will come. And that's it. It can't mean anything more than that, Schweitzer says. And you'd be surprised how many in the seminaries agree with Schweitzer. Far too little is said for that to be true. Let's reflect on a couple of verses in Matthew chapter 10. Verse 5 and verse 6. These 12, we are told, that's far too little for a plain interpretation to apply. You'll follow what I'm saying as I develop this idea. Don't worry if you don't get it at the moment. But as I said in the first study, I emphasized some of these things, but I passed over them relatively quickly. 
Jesus said to these 12, he did not say this to the 70. He did not say this to the 120 in Acts chapter 2. He did not say this to all believers. He said to these 12 that I send you forth. And he commanded them saying, go not into the way of the Gentiles. Don't go to the Gentiles. Do not go into any city of the Samaritans, but rather, verse 6, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel only. That's in this chapter. And my argument that I will fill out a little bit fuller here in a moment is Jesus and the context is dealing with a situation that is far too little. Its pieces, its components entail far too little for one to think that Jesus seriously thought the kingdom of God would come at this time. For if that were the case, then Jesus must be schizophrenic. He must have a double-minded mind. He must be unstable in all his ways. He must speak with forked tongue. And I think we know that that could not be said of Christ except one were blaspheming. And so these views are actually blasphemous. That's why I say they are cynical comments of the unconverted. It's one thing for the converted to see preterism or some other arrangement, but anyone who would argue that this text is to be taken in this absolute sort of plainness is cynical and not serious. Back to Matthew chapter 10. Verse 23, we just spoke about Jesus sending the twelve, telling them not to go to the Gentiles, not to go to the Samaritans. Schweitzer says that's no problem. Jesus meant it just that way. And the kingdom of God was going to come when they finished their little journey around the cities of Israel. Well, had Jesus forgotten some of these statements that I'm going to relay to you now that he made before... Matthew chapter 10 took place. Some statements that he made chronologically before he ever got to, as it were, Matthew 10, 23, historically. In Jesus' evening discourse with Nicodemus, Jesus makes this remark. Listen to the language. Verily, verily. Sounds like a man who knows what he's talking about, doesn't it? Not, I think that this might be the case, or I'm musing today in one particular direction about the future, and in Matthew 10, I might muse in a different direction. I don't really know what I'm doing. He's not schizophrenic. This is an undermining of the seriousness of the Bible and the person of Christ. And the fault is on Schweitzer and others, not on Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, listen to this, we speak that we do know. Sounds like a man who knows what he's talking about. And testify that we have seen. And you don't receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Almost in every phrase, we have arguments already just burgeoning up against Schweitzer's sort of approach to the text. Jesus is stating that he speaks of earthly things and he speaks of heavenly things. 
He says in verse 13, no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. How deep is that concept? That is such a deep concept that in the world of theological terminology, it has attached to itself its own specific language. It is the extra-Calvinisticum, which argues that though Jesus with his divine nature is one person with two natures, that nonetheless the divine nature cannot be limited to the human nature. And additionally, Calvin would argue against the Lutherans that the human nature cannot be omnipresent somehow or other. I am again not dealing with that question, but I'm saying look at the depths. The Son of Man is still in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is verse, verse 14, even so must the who? The Daniel 7, 13, son of man, that Jesus is self-identifying with. The son of man must be lifted up. Do you all see why this is significant? This is before Matthew 10, 23. And he is saying the Son of Man must be lifted up as was the serpent in the wilderness. You know what that speaks of? Crucifixion. Way back in Jesus' evening discourse with Nicodemus, he already knew the Son of Man was going to go to the cross. Had he gone to the cross yet in Matthew 10, 23? So he couldn't possibly have meant seriously that the Son of Man is going to come. The kingdom is going to come in his power and glory. He says that whosoever... Verse 15, that whosoever we should recognize, especially from our vantage point, and appreciate when Jesus says whosoever, he really means whosoever from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation. He means whoever believes in him would not perish. And yet in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is forbidding them to go to the Gentiles and the Samaritans, they can only go to the Jews. But he knows that this gospel is going to be presented and made available and validated through his crucifixion to whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved only the Jews, so let's just go to the cities of Israel, then the kingdom of God will come. No, that's not what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees for a sign. And he said that no sign would be given to an evil and adulterous generation. And then in verse 40, he says, except the sign of Jonah who was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the who? Just any random sort of connotation or appellation that Jesus thought maybe he would fall asleep someday and sort of shift his weight and fall into a pit and they would cover him over with some dirt and then he'd wake up three days later or something he wasn't really clear on? He is saying specifically the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Speaking of his burial after crucifixion, 
This occurred before Matthew 10.23 ever came about chronologically. So Jesus knows about his crucifixion. He knows about this sign of Jonah. Had that happened before Matthew 10.23 took place? If this sign had not been fulfilled when Matthew 10.23 is occurring, then Jesus certainly couldn't be thinking that the kingdom of God is going to come. He hadn't been in the belly of the earth yet for three days and three nights. How about the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says in Matthew 7 and verse 21, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord. Who was saying Lord, Lord in the time frame of Matthew 10? Not very many people. It may be that some of these statements that I make require you to reflect upon the implications. And I don't know that it's beneficial to wait for the argument to register in your minds. You can go back and, as I say, re-listen to what I'm saying. And until you get it, listen to it again and again. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is making a statement before Matthew 10. He says, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 10. To some extent, he's saying the Son of Man will come. And if you think he just meant literally that the kingdom is now going to come in all of its power, had he forgotten what he said in Matthew 7? There's going to be people saying, Lord, Lord. Why? There were very few people that were receiving him as Lord. He had to go up to Caesarea Philippi and say, what do people think about me? And they would say, well, you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah. Or you're one of the prophets. They weren't saying Lord. And then in verse 22, he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Well, that's not really possible until after Acts chapter 2. Who was prophesying in Jesus' name before Matthew chapter 10? Nobody. And in thy name we have cast out demons. Maybe some have, but not many. Maybe a few. I'm not even sure anybody did. This was their first apostolic journey. But if you want to tell some, some, some sort of story that it could apply, because they would be casting out demons during their journey in Matthew chapter 10, but it wouldn't be many, many, 12 is many? Are you serious? And in thy name done many wonderful works, and then I will profess to them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I mean, he's only got 12 going out to potentially prophesy, cast out demons and do many wonderful works. He's going to say to many of them, I never knew you? Even statements made after Matthew chapter 10 still have application to manifest that there's too little entailed with what is going on in the context of Matthew chapter 10. It's only 12 of his apostles sent to go only to Israel, not to the Gentiles. And so some statements that occurred even after Matthew chapter 10 still make the point that I am making. In Mark chapter 10, in verse 45, we, we read, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The one who was speaking to the twelve in Matthew chapter 10 certainly knew that that was true about the Son of Man. And he hadn't given his life a ransom for many. So he clearly didn't mean 
that before you get through going throughout all the cities of Israel, the Son of Man is going to come in the power of the kingdom. He couldn't possibly have meant that because he is not schizophrenic. How about John chapter 10 and verse 16? Jesus says, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall be one fold and one shepherd. The one who is speaking to the twelve in Matthew chapter 10 is the same one who is speaking in John chapter 10, and he says, I know that I have other sheep, and they need to be brought into this fold. So if what is occurring in Matthew chapter 10 are the last events in Jesus' mind, the last events to happen in this age before the parousia and the coming of the Son of Man, how can that possibly be true? He's just forbidden them to go to the Gentiles. So what did he forget? Did he forget that there are other sheep? And then there are numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus knew of that involve the Gentiles having the word and the gospel coming to them. I understand that these prophecies were mysterious, but they weren't absolutely or perhaps even slightly mysterious to Jesus' understanding. And therefore, Christ could not have told them, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans. We have a new plan here, just go to the cities of Israel, and then the Son of Man is going to come. Now, he said that. He said the Son of Man is going to come. I want you to get that. So this isn't boring teaching. He said that, but he didn't mean it as just a plain, straightforward statement. There's a depth to what we should understand is going on in this text. And that's what we're seeking, by the way, ultimately to get to. But I'm still getting that wedge in there and prying that lid open. And I hope you hear and feel each whack. And you're seeing that, man, this is an illegitimate lid. we got to take the lid off this box and say, okay, what did he mean? Because he clearly couldn't have meant that. He couldn't be denying all the prophecies that went before. That makes no sense whatsoever. You can read Romans 9 through 11 as an example within which you'll see a grouping of Old Testament passages that are prophesying that the gospel will come to the Gentiles. Take Romans 10 and verse 20. Paul says, Isaiah is very bold. And he says, quoting Isaiah 65 and verse 1, I was found of them that sought me not. I understand that that's mysterious, but we know now that that speaks of the Gentiles. And Jesus knew that. And therefore, he couldn't have possibly told his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles and the kingdom of God is going to come anyway. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched forth my hand onto a disobedient and gainsaying people. That's a better description of what this little journey was in part entailed of. It was another stretching out of God's hands to his people. It wasn't the final mission before the coming of the kingdom. And nor, by the way, was what occurred in AD 70. 
It wasn't the final event of God before the coming of the power of God's kingdom. That's just not deep enough. My preterist friends, your box is still too shallow. I, I imagine those who reflect in these things, they understand where I'm coming from. Those that are involved in the eschatological discussion, and they are sensing that I am just ripping the lid off of Schweitzer's little shallow box, but I'm doing this as a brother in Christ to help you see. Look in your own box. Does it go deep enough? If you see, you have to go deeper than just the plain language, then don't you see the question becomes, how deep is the right interpretation? And that just can't be defined by tradition or what you wish it was or something along those lines. We have to let the Bible speak for itself. Why, even Simeon made a remark that shows us Matthew 10, 23 could not possibly have, as Schweitzer says, just plain language, that the end of the age, he says that, the end of the age, Jesus was saying, would come before they finished going throughout the cities of Israel, and then the Son of Man would arrive. Now, Schweitzer would say, didn't he say that? I would say, in a sense, he did, but his implication is deeper, and you have to put all of Jesus' statements together. And what I'm referring to with respect to Simeon is found in Luke chapter 2 and in verse 32 after Simeon says in verse 30, he says, my eyes have seen thy salvation. Well, that's a bit of a deep insight, isn't it? He's seeing a little babe and he's seeing the salvation of God. It's not illegitimate to argue that it requires some depth in the spirit to understand the ways of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. There are depths in God that the Holy Spirit alone can seek out and reveal and guide us into. In verse 31, he goes on to say, Which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles. Referring to Isaiah 49 and verse 6, And the glory of thy people, Israel. So we haven't gone to the Gentiles yet. There's far too little happening in Matthew chapter 10 for this to be the spot where the kingdom of God is going to come. We haven't gotten to the Gentiles yet. In fact, they were specifically forbidden to go to the Gentiles. That's a huge red flag saying, hey, there's far too little going on here for you to take it as Jesus, meaning literally the kingdom of God is going to come. He hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't been buried and fulfilled the sign of Jonah. As a matter of fact, he can preach the prospect of the kingdom, but there's really not even a gospel to preach yet. And anyway, unless you think that Jesus was seriously thinking that these 12 were going to go everywhere within Palestine, Roman-occupied Palestine, as well as all the other locations where the Jews were located throughout the dispersion, unless you think that that's what Jesus meant and they were going to do all of that in this little journey, and then the 12, because he's speaking to the 12 in Matthew 10, 23. He's not speaking to the 70 and the 120. You have to expand its application if you're going to do that sort of thing. He's speaking to the 12, and he says to them, I'm telling you, you will not go throughout all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So unless you expand their journey into all the Jewish cities throughout the dispersion, you still have far too little 
in your interpretation. Why do I mean that? Because the idea of all the cities of Israel can't be limited to Roman-occupied, former, sovereignly controlled Israeli territory. Because in Jesus' day, Israel no longer existed as a geopolitical entity. The term Israel refers to an ethnic designation or religious designation. The cities of Israel, what are the cities of Israel? Ask the Romans, ask Pilate, how many cities in this place belong to Israel? He'll say none of them, they all belong to Caesar. That's why some of them are named like Caesarea Philippi. Oh, we will allow the Jews to live here and we'll grant them some degree of um, self-determination. But uh, no, no, these are Roman cities. And at about 66 AD through 73 AD, at what is known as the first Jewish-Roman war, you will find out that if you don't agree that these are Roman cities and not Jewish cities, we will make the point at the end of a spear, which they did. And so I'm saying that even the language of all the cities of Israel, what does that mean if it doesn't include the dispersion? Did Jesus mean go throughout all the cities of the dispersion? I doubt he meant that. He just meant the more populously occupied areas within, we'll call it Palestine, that are the present Jewish centers where the Jewish people live. So what is going on here? What I want to turn to is a direct presentation of what is known as the proleptic interpretation. I have incorporated that term here and there throughout these two previous studies, but I want to bring the idea before you specifically at this point. I want to prove that what is happening here is a proleptic remark. Perhaps I should add that I'm not the one who chooses these terms. The idea of a prolepsis or the adjectival form of that noun Proleptic, the idea of a proleptic remark, is a term that is actually primarily, at least in religion, within the language of eschatological conversation, though it can be used elsewhere. But it's an important idea to understand, and so let's seek to make it clear to you. The noun prolepsis is a compound noun made up of the prefix pro, which means before, and actually the infinitive of the Greek term lambano, which means to take or to receive. So it's lambanein. So prolepsis means to take before. Adjectivally, it means something that is anticipatory. It describes a future act as if. That's the key. As if. It is presently existing. And one of the ways by which it can be argued that this ultimate future act is in some sense presently existing is because it's something like a small dose or a typical fulfillment of a grander event. And we call that a proleptic event. Here's a sentence out of a theological dictionary which states a proleptic act is an eschatological occurrence happening within history 
prior to the end. And it gives this as an example. It says, hence, Jesus' resurrection is a prolepsis of the general resurrection that marks the end of the present age. And so, for example, when Jesus was transfigured before three single individuals, Peter, James, and John, and he says, Verily I say unto you, there are some that are standing here which will not taste of death until they see the power of the kingdom, the coming of the Son of Man in his glory effectively. The transfiguration was a proleptic display of his coming glory, which will ultimately be before every eye, as Revelation 1-7 states. So you see what they experienced was indeed a foretaste, a small dose of the coming of the Son of Man. But it is not the grand event itself. That is a proleptic event. In the second century BC, the Seleucid ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes lived out the role of a proleptic manifestation of Antichrist. He is not the Antichrist, but in God's providence, he plays the role of a proleptic foretaste of what the Antichrist will be like and do. And it's useful to understand because this is part of how God reveals the future to us by giving small doses of the fulfillment of some of these things. And God often implements proleptic actions prior to the ultimate grand manifestation. Indeed, the entire sacrificial system is a proleptic, typical demonstration of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world. Thinking again about the Antichrist, John makes the argument even after the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. In John chapter 2 and verse 18, John says, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that the Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists. And so Schweitzer says, you see that? Antichrist is not a single individual. There are many Antichrists. Others argue that Antichrist is a system. It's not a person. We could go on and on and on because there are certain things that would sort of fit that description. But what you're getting tripped up in is the reality of proleptic manifestations. There are many antichrists, and not everybody that looks at you cross-eyed is an antichrist, but there are many antichrists that play out types, you know, that do things that are in keeping with the character of antichrist and their proleptic manifestations of what antichrist will be like. And so the coming of the Son of Man that Jesus refers to in Matthew 10, 23. Before the twelve complete their first apostolic journey is a proleptic foretaste of the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven with power. Now, it's most useful if you're quite biblically literate and you understand that I'm using 
language right out of the Bible. That in Matthew 24, 30, we hear about the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven with power. And I'm saying Jesus said to the 12, before you go through all the cities of Israel in this first apostolic journey, you 12, you will experience the coming of the Son of Man. And as I said at the beginning of this message, I don't know what they thought that meant. I don't know if they scratched their head and were utterly bewildered. Maybe they thought like Schweitzer thought. They might have, that it was just a plain statement, but it couldn't possibly a plain statement. He would have said to them, are you so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken that you don't see some depth in what I'm saying? But at the same time, Jesus always tells the truth and what he says is meaningful and serious if you understand how it's working. And I'm saying to you, as a matter of fact, we need to see a specific coming of the Son of Man that the Twelve experienced. And to enable your heart to appreciate what that is and to find its proper limitations, it helps to recognize the concept of a proleptic manifestation. Ultimately, the Son of Man is going to come with power and great glory. And he's going to deliver this entire earth from all demonic oppression and all the consequences of sin. The curse is going to be removed with one great manifestation of power. It's going to sweep over the earth. I don't think it's going to happen in a snap of the finger, by the way. That's another question. But with a very, within a very short series of events, when Jesus returns, he's going to vanquish his enemies and he's going to bring this world, this earth, back to a restored position and his power is going to do all of that. So in what sense then should we understand the coming of the Son of Man being experienced by the twelve? Well, if we go back to Matthew chapter 10, we read verses 5 and 6 and showed you that there's too little going on for it to be a full Complete coming of the Son of Man because it's only the twelve he's talking to and they're only going to the Jews. If we continue to read after verse 6, which says, just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In verse 7, Jesus says, as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is not now, but at hand, near. The kingdom of heaven is near. It is getting ready, but it's not yet but it's getting ready. Verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you've received the gospel, the truths of the kingdom. Freely you are under the anointing of the king. Freely you receive, freely give. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, though we do not have the full details of what they experienced on this particular journey when they returned back and gave an account of what occurred when they went throughout all the cities of Israel, the 12 on this missionary journey in Matthew chapter 10. But there's no doubt that they experienced some measure of the healing of the sick, the cleansing of the lepers, the raising of the dead, the casting out demons. I mean, even, they, even if they only healed a few sick on this occasion, it was still a dose, a foretaste, a representation of the power of the kingdom that is going to come in various times and in various eras with more or less power through God's people. You might notice I am not a cessationist. 
the manifestation of the power of the kingdom is still relevant for our time. That this is indeed the right way to think about this is evident when we reflect on what occurs in Luke chapter 10. I turn your attention to Luke chapter 10. We go from Matthew chapter 10 to Luke chapter 10, but we're in the same year in Jesus' ministry. We're in the same chronological year. And it's very useful to read the first verse of Luke chapter 10 more or less as if it just occurs after Matthew chapter 10 because it's a legitimate way of reflecting on it. We read after these things because it's very true that after Jesus sent the 12 on this first apostolic journey training session as the title of this entire series is its top title as opposed to the subtitle. It is 12 on a trial trip. We read after these things in Luke 10 verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and set them, sent them two by two before his face in every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore said he on to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Did he not know that in Matthew chapter 10? Did he not know that the harvest is great and the laborers are few? We're going to need more than 12 to get this accomplished. That wasn't anything he was aware of. So he just sent the 12 out and said, go out into the cities of Israel and tell them about the kingdom. But before you get through all the cities, the Son of Man is going to come. The parousia is going to occur. Go your way, he says. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Where have you heard that before? It seems like there's a paradigm. There are principles of understanding that Jesus is seeking to incrementally get into the hearts of all those who will be his witnesses. And therefore, Matthew chapter 10 is functioning as a training session. And now he's broadening this out to 70 and he's giving them much the same instruction. Don't carry a purse or a script or shoes. Salute nobody by the way into whatever house you enter. First say, peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house and into whatever city you enter and they receive you. Eat such things as they set before you. Heal the sick that are therein and say to them, this is like the coming of the Son of Man. This is a foretaste. This is a proleptic experience of what the coming of the Son of Man will accomplish universally. And that's my gospel I am preaching to you that there is one in our midst who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is not time for the fullness of his kingdom yet, nor is it today. But we represent this Jesus and we come to you and we say, he wants you to taste a breaking forth of the power of the kingdom through the clouds of darkness and into the very territory of Satan. He's going to spoil him in his own House and time, heal the sick and tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. It has broken through and intruded itself into the strong man's house to manifest that at the end of the day, there is one God 
and he is Yahweh. And we speak in the name of Jesus and cast out demons in his name. We do something with just the finger of God. But soon the entire person of Christ is going to come in his glory and the fullness of the power of the kingdom will occur. Verse 10, but into whatever city you enter and they don't receive you. Remember back in Matthew chapter 10, he says, if they persecute you in one city, go to the next one. He says, go your way out into the streets of the same and say, even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth unto us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be sure of this. You have had a foretaste of the kingdom of God. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for that city. And then Jesus steps back and thinks about some cities that he has already come to, that he's already ministered to, and they have in their, in their rebellion ripened to a place where they have rejected him. And he speaks even proleptically about the final judgment to two particular cities, one by the name of Chorazin and the other by the name of Bethsaida. And he says, woe unto you, you cities that had a front row seat under the ministry of Jesus Christ in Galilee. Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Zion, Zidon, Gentile cities, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and in ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Zidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, thou typical city that ultimately stands for all the cities of the earth to which the gospel comes. If they receive the gospel, stay there and minister. But Jesus is effectively telling and setting out the principle of how the advancement of the kingdom will occur in this time. That is the gospel message going to the various cities. There will be in the various cities a time frame within which some reception takes place. But Jesus is saying ultimately in every city of the earth, the gospel will be rejected and persecuted. And these proleptic remarks are standing for the end time judgments on all the cities that have rejected Christ, all the cities of men that just like the days of Noah have turned against the gospel, though they've been privileged to hear it over time. He that heareth you heareth me. He that despiseth you despiseth me. He that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And the 70 returned again with joy saying, the Son of Man came before we went through the cities of Israel. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's what they're saying. Lord, even the demons are subject unto us through thy name. I'm suggesting to you, though we don't have the record of their report back to Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, something like this would have also occurred. They would have come back and they would have healed someone. Something would have happened and the Son of Man came. 
And Jesus wanted them to understand that this is the power of the kingdom. And I am here, you're getting proleptic foretastes out of this, but I am here to give my life in order to fulfill what must be done in order for the spirit to be given to my people so that they can go forth in the power of the kingdom and preach the sovereignty and the kingship of Jesus Christ and heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, tell this world in the various cities that the king that I represent is coming to bring deliverance to those that love him and judgment to those that resist him and here is a foretaste of that power in the meeting of your needs so that's what Matthew 10 and verse 23 is speaking of a proleptic expression of the power of the kingdom I would bring your attention to Luke chapter 22 to complete at least to some extent, the picture of the sendings and the conversation of the sendings that Jesus had with his disciples so that you can see that there's a plan in place and Matthew 10 is a part of that plan. It was a trial trip. Luke chapter 22 and verse 35, this is part of Jesus' upper room discourse on the night in which he was betrayed, that is not recorded in John's gospel. But in verse 35, we read, And Jesus said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, did you lack anything? Recall he sent the twelve out in that fashion, as well as the seventy. So whether or not the twelve participated in the seventy, we don't have to sort out at this moment. I know it says he sent out other 70. Let's not worry about that. Whoever is with him in the upper room, you follow what I'm saying? He's saying to them, when I sent you without purse and without script and shoes, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Even that's part of the power of the kingdom coming to their life. While they were going through the cities of Jerusalem, God meeting your needs. Amen, brothers and sisters. I mean, some of the most marvelous experiences I have had was when I went to China. And it's in some sense the Spirit saying to all of us, you need to get out more. You know, like people say, I haven't, you know, I haven't really seen anything wonderful. And we have this phrase, well, you, you need to get out. Well, well, if you haven't seen God do wonderful things, maybe you need to get out more. I haven't the time to tell you the different experiences I had while going to China, in China, coming back from China. But God was there with the power of his kingdom to meet all sorts of needs, big, little, small, and in between. Hallelujah. And so they said nothing. We didn't lack anything. Verse 36, then said he unto them, but now, oh, hallelujah, I'm not ashamed to be an expositor of the word of God, which means I'm not ashamed to show you that little phrases like that make all sorts of import. That is to say, little phrases like that give us understanding. What I'm saying to you is there was a plan all along. Matthew 10, Jesus said, don't take a script. I'm only speaking to your 12, to these 12. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samarians, Samaritans. Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, all right, let's have 70 do this. But still, don't take food. You know, script is a little package of food with you. Don't take purse and a extra staff and whatever. But having given you some training, and having established some of the principles of what you'll experience when you enter in to the full-scale battle of bringing the message of the accomplished redemption to all the cities of the world. 
He says, but now, he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise is script. And he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And poor Albert Schweitzer says, that means just that and nothing else. He meant go buy a sword. What's the Jewish phrase? How do they, oh my, oh, oi, oi. Well, what do they do? They do something like that. I don't know if you, does anybody know? Oi, ve, oi, ve. No, there's some depth to what he's saying. He doesn't mean a literal sword anymore when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That he meant, is it because we didn't take bread? Jesus expects us to be able to understand things at a deeper depth, and that means you have to enter into the consistency of his heart and his conversation and what, what's going on. And I know that no man is sufficient of himself to think anything of himself to be made either an able minister or an able understander of the New Testament, but the Spirit of God can help us. And teaching like this is a part of what the Spirit of God does to help you to learn the art of hearing the Lord speak to you from His Word. He says, He that does not have a sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that... This that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. And I assure you that end was not in Matthew 10.23. When he says, but now, what he's saying is the future ministry is going to be a bigger task, a longer journey, and a constant battle. I've trained you. I've been establishing principles of ministry, but when you actually get out into that ministry, you're going to need to remember all of this training and understand that the real battle is more deep and more profound than what you've experienced yet. Well, dear brethren, I'm going to need to bring our study to a close this afternoon, a bit to my surprise, but not to my chagrin, because... As the Lord allows, there's next Sunday, at which time, as the Lord allows, we will complete this because I still have more to say, believe it or not. I want to talk about the reality that Jesus also says too much for this to be taken straightforwardly. We'll get to that. And then I want to have some final remarks about application. And I just think, all things considered, it's a little bit more than probably is best for our baskets this afternoon but I hope that the wedge of this interrogation of Schweitzer's interpretation is getting under that lid and prying it off that box that is boxing Jesus' profound statements in this limited space. And I'm not arguing for allegorical and spiritualizing of everything. I'm just saying you're going to get that lid off and let's understand that we have to put our thinking caps on. We've got to get on our knees and pray. We've got to go through the rest of Scripture and see what is going on here. What's the depth of what this is talking about? I've suggested some of it to you. I want to just end by emphasizing what we have accomplished. The coming of the Son of Man that Jesus was referring to in Matthew 10, 23 was a proleptic foretaste of the power of the kingdom that they were, would experience if they would go out and preach the gospel and lay hands on the sick and cast out demons. And I am saying to you that from heaven's side, that should still be occurring on the earth. So there's your homework.
and mine. Not to just try something, but to get on our faces and seek God to be laborers in this time. For the field is white unto harvest, but some of it is being picked far too soon and garnered into churches that are not bringing the whole counsel of God. Let's make them a little bit whiter by bringing a little bit more power as God graciously anoints those that represent His Word and His full counsel. Why don't you stand with me?